welcome to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. I'm your host, Michael Badger, and this week we have with us Megan Allman from the Life Training Institute. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Life Training Institute, their goal is to equip Christians with the tools to defend the unborn. They have spoken at countless universities, high schools, and conferences around the country and have collaborated with individuals such as Vody Bauckham, Paul Washer, and ministries such as DesiringGod.com. Megan was an award-winning journalist before becoming part of the Life Training Institute and obtained a Master's of Arts in Christian Apologetics from Biola University. She speaks with us about the state of the abortion argument in the U.S., answers the top arguments from the pro-choice side of the debate, and tells us how we can not only defend the unborn, but also how we can create bridges to the gospel. You can also hear our discussion at patreon.com t4d or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Simply search Truth For Doubt on your favorite podcasting platform. We hope you enjoy this discussion. All right, Megan Allman, thank you again so much for doing this. I really, really can't thank you enough. I actually uh, saw you before I messaged you a couple of years ago. My wife and I watched the Life is Best videos uh, in Germany where we were doing some of our schooling. Uh, and so this is kind of a, a surreal thing to be talking with you. Uh, <laughs> so it's really neat. Oh, that's awesome. And um, interestingly enough, those videos, the, the portions I was a part of were actually filmed in Chattanooga. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> you know, I was actually wondering that because I saw the bridge and I was like, that looks a lot like the pedestrian bridge in Chattanooga. So that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, it absolutely was. It was absolutely frigid, but it was a fun experience. And um, I'm so glad the videos were helpful. It was a pleasure to get to do them and, and a pleasure to be with you. Oh, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, so I figured we would start off just with you telling us who you are and, uh, and, and what you do and all of that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well, Megan Allman, and I am a speaker with Life Training Institute. Um, Life Training Institute was founded by Scott Klusendorf several years ago, and um, we are a pro-life apologetics training organization, and that simply means that we um, help people learn to give reasons for why the pro-life view is true um, and make an argument or a persuasive case for it in the marketplace of ideas. Um, and I got, yeah, I, I really kind of got involved in this work in a crazy roundabout way. Um, I was actually a newspaper reporter. So that's quite a oh, wow. 180. Um, <laughs> got into writing for newspapers. I, I was a magazines major in college, so an undergrad in journalism. And I loved telling people stories. Um, it's always been about people for me. And so um, that, that's what I was doing. And because I was kind of a rookie in the newsroom of the newspaper where I was working in our former home in Noonan, Georgia, um, I was asked to go one night and cover a community event, and it turned out to be our local Pregnancy Resource Center's um, annual fundraising banquet. So many of the pregnancy resource centers in our nation, because they are nonprofit organizations, primarily volunteer-run, um, they, they will have a, usually a huge event every year that, that raises a, a large um, amount of the money they're able to use throughout the year. So that was big news in our community, and I went to that dinner, into that, that banquet, and Scott Klusendorf was the speaker that night. Um, so once I encountered him and, and heard the way that he was able to really handle an issue that I thought was impossible to talk about mm -hmm. um, without without things just blowing up or becoming heated, um, I thought, I have got to learn how to do that well. And not just about abortion, but about uh, my faith in general as a Christian. Um, and so I, I began studying on my own. And after about a year of of that, my husband sat me down and said, you know what? we need to send you back to school because I think you could really do something special with this. Um, so long story short, I, I went back to school and I majored in uh, Christian apologetics as a graduate degree program at Biola University. And uh, I learned to tell different stories. And so that's what I'm doing now. And if you ask Scott, he'll say that I bugged him until he hired me. But um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not my side of the story. Gotcha. That's funny. That's funny. So did all the apologetics training and I, I guess maybe um, I guess the, the critical thinking and all that kind of stuff that goes into, you know, schooling for apologetics kind of help you flesh out how to, you know, better articulate the arguments and stuff for the pro-life position? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
what I had learned just through studying all of that and this issue is that oftentimes the objections people have and the questions they have about abortion are coming from the way they view the world. So mm-hmm. deep down, it becomes a worldview issue. And the more you're able to kind of dig down and uncover those deeper questions, um, I think the, the better conversations tend to go um, about the issue because you, you bring other things to light. Uh, for example, I think one of the biggest questions undergirding the issue right now in the discourse that we're hearing in our society is the way that people answer what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And the, the most prevalent view on what it means to be human in our culture right now is not the Christian one, but it's the one that's really driving the conversation. We can talk more about that in a bit if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess before we get into that, what is your take on everything that's going on right now um, with just, you know, you had the thing a few months ago in New York uh, that was just atrocious with the uh, um, abortion being up to um, basically, I, I, I get, I think it, if I'm correct, it's up until the baby's about to come out of the womb. But then you also yeah. have the the kickback to that with states like, you know, Alabama and Georgia. And I think there's a couple of new ones now that are um, doing the heartbeat abortion bans. What What's your take on what's going on in the country? Do you think there's like a, do you think the, I guess the, pendulum starting to swing the other way for more pro-life or do you think it's more, I guess, hostile than ever? I, well, that's it. Mm, I think, I think we're seeing the polarizing effects come into play. So we're mm-hmm. definitely seeing the dividing line going, you know, we've got one side and the other side and they're very clearly delineated and there are still people on the fence, but less so because the conversation is so prevalent and at the forefront right now. And I work in this field. And to be honest, these past few months have left my head spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, think Things that I think we've been um, hoping for, or maybe even predicting at some level are happening very, very quickly um, at this point. And so even today, you know, before I, I got on with you on this on the, on, the, on the podcast here, I was trying to listen through it and look through and go, have I missed anything that's come out since yesterday? Right. So <laughs> um, many things are happening all the time. And so quickly, yes. Um, you know, Scott wrote an article a few um, weeks ago, I guess it's been a couple of months ago now, for uh, the, the Desiring God site. You can still look it up and find it. But he was asked to give a statement on you know, the state of things in the pro-life movement and in, re- in referring to the, you know, the, the last election that we had, um, he, he made sure to kind of distinguish that this was more of a Dunkirk situation than a D-Day situation. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that was um, with the last election, um, it, putting a pro-life president in the White House, um, even though there was a lot of you know, conversation around the way that all went you know, among, among Christians and among pro-lifers, but in doing that, we didn't have any kind of ultimate victory. We just bought some time. Right. Um, and so everyone has to get to work now because what's happening at this point is it's really just beginning. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of uh, more or less, the words of my friend Jay Watts at Merely Human Ministries, um, we, we picked a fight. And so we should have expected what, what we're getting. Right. Um, yeah. And so what's happening is we see that, you know, the, the, this window of possibility for Roe v. Wade to be relitigated or reexamined and, and possibly overturned, what we're seeing is the states preparing for that. Um, so we have these very pro-choice states like uh, New York, who, by the way, wasn't the only state to put that legislation in place. Uh, they, I think there were about seven others prior to New York that already had it. They just didn't light up their skyline pink um, right. in such a way as to, just to make it this huge celebratory thing. Um, but all those states did in, in, in having that legislation in place was actually to preserve the status quo of what Roe already allows. Because under the federal law, the way that it stands right now, abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy. And it has to do with the way that Roe is worded, um, referring to the health of the mother, mm-hmm. which was the question mark in the third trimester, according to Roe all by itself, uh, that there might be a reason to restrict abortion during the third trimester of pregnancy because there's some interest in the possibility of life. You know, there's right. a lot of interesting wording there. But Roe was passed down with another case called Doe versus Bolton. And Doe versus Bolton went on to define the health of the mother so broadly that it effectively resulted in abortion on demand. And so what we have in this country is abortion legal through all nine months of pregnancy. And so New York changed the wording of its law to be in line with the way that Doe uh, worded how we define health of the mother. So in other words, New York's statement was, if all of this goes crazy, 
And if it does, by the way, if, if Roe is overturned, it will go back to the states to decide. Mm -hmm. So New York and, was saying, we will preserve the status quo. Right. And do you think that's the best, I guess, best case scenario for um, when it comes to the case of abortion? Do you think it's best for it to be kicked back to the states? Or do you think that, I guess, as the pro-life movement, uh, we should be aiming for that just countrywide ban? What do you think would be the most effective there? Well, as I, I think that one might you know, be the, have the possibility of leading to the other. Because when Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, what, what did happen, and the reason why the legislation was questionable to begin with, is that the ju ju judicial branch kind of co-opted this from the other two branches of the federal government and took the say away. Mm -hmm. um, it said, we will decide for everyone how this is going to go. Right. Um, and so it, by going back to the states, the very positive thing um, for pro-lifers is that we will have a say. Um, so I think that that's very exciting. That's exactly where we want it um, so that we can then go and be very effective in the way that we are, that we are talking about it, even with our, our neighbors and our friends, but certainly at the, when we vote. Um, and so I, you know, it, it, at this point, we all have to be apologists. Um, that's right. what we're setting up for. We have a we have a long battle ahead of us. Hopefully, that will lead to um, abortion becoming ultimately unthinkable. Yeah, absolutely. So, with all of your speaking engagements and things that you've done, um, have you gotten any? I guess not. Maybe threats or anything, but people protesting or anything like that. Or, or have you again? Have you seen more of a agreeance of what you're doing more so than maybe in the past? Well, um, I, I've not been completely, I've not had hostility in the places that I've been. I've had people who disagree. I've had people who've been rather heated in their disagreement. Um, but the way that we go about things at Life Training Institute is, I mean, really, I think, uh, wonderful in that we come in and we are presenting a case. So when I go into an audience, and typically I work in front of student audiences more than any other audience, high school or college students. Um, and when I'm coming in to talk to them, Really, all of the work is on my shoulders, mm -hmm. and that's what I let them know. I'm here not to tell you that you should be pro-life because I am, but to make a case to appeal to you and let you know these are the reasons why I think that the pro-life view is true. Will you consider them? And isn't that always the way that reasonable dialogue should go? Right, we're yeah. offering something to be considered, um, something to think about something to reason through. And, and I think that when we do reasonable dialogue well, um, we are all made better because of it. Because certainly the people that I encounter who disagree with me, they give me things to think about as well. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, I've not been persuaded to change my mind because I think the reasons for the pro-life view being true are excellent. Um, I think it's objectively true, which is, is an important thing that's lost in the discourse, I think, sometimes, um, particularly when it comes to abortion. But because we present it in that way, I think most of the time people are kind of taken aback a little, um, pleasantly surprised perhaps. I don't think they feel threatened or um, as if I'm attacking them, uh, but rather that I'm, I'm, I'm putting the ideas out on the table and, and inviting them to look at them with me. So yeah, uh, that's wonderful. It tends to go, it tends to go well. I haven't had those things happen yet. Doesn't mean that I won't. Sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so you mentioned earlier that uh, there's the main, I guess the lynch key issue is uh, what is life or where does life begin or, or what is it that's in the womb? So I was wondering if you could talk ab about that a little bit. Is that, do you believe that that's the main issue, that the, the, the main question that we need to get across or that we need to spend time really delving into with people who may be pro-choice? Um, I do. I think it's exactly the starting place. It's the place that frames the conversation. And here's, here's why. Because when we hear reasons for why abortion should be allowed, um, many of those reasons make the mistake of assuming that the unborn is not human like you and I are, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to pay attention and listen to that. And um, at Life Training Institute, when we do a basic case for life training, that is the very first thing that we teach people is to look for this and learn how to simplify the issue in conversation. And just for those who are listening and heard that word simplify and are thinking, this is not a simple issue, um, they're right in a number of ways. It's not simple in, in terms of the things that bump into it. Um, in fact, it's very complex when we start looking at it psychologically and emotionally and economically and you know, in all of these different things. But morally speaking, 
it is a very simple issue. So when we are listening to reasons for why the uh, abortion should be allowed, um, I, you know, I can list a few of them for you. Privacy is one of them. Um, that would be the the, the reason under the, under the law that's mm-hmm. given, the justification that's given. Um, we hear oftentimes poverty as a reason given for why abortion should be allowed. Poverty is not a simple issue either, certainly. Um, we hear things like women um, ought to have the right to pursue their education and their careers and their dreams without an unplanned pregnancy standing in the way of that. Um, goodness, we hear things about uh, that, that, you know, disabled children, if, if there's a disability found while they're in the womb and we know that they're going to struggle when they're born and lead perhaps a poor quality of life, you know, in comparison to a normal functioning individual, um, that abortion ought to be allowed in those circumstances. Or, uh, you know, why would we want an unwanted child to come into the, into the world? And the reasons go on and on and on and on. There's mm-hmm. a huge list of them. But if we take a second and step back and look at them, Every single one of those reasons assumes that the unborn is not human. We would never do those things to a three-year-old who stands in the way of something that we want or in the name of privacy or um, because they're expensive, um, you know, or because they have a disability or because they're unwanted. There are orphanages around the world full of seemingly unwanted children. I think that's arguable. Um, But no matter what, when we, when we come back to it, we see that there's something being assumed here, that the unborn is not human like you and me. And when you're in conversation with somebody, you can um, actually use a toddler uh, to, to draw that out or to, to point that out. Um, we teach a technique at Life Training Institute called Trot Out the Toddler. Um, I'm sure you saw it on on the video that you watched, the Life is Best video. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think that I've, I've actually used that in, in conversations with people who are uh, pro-choice. And it is, I think it's one of the most effective things that I have ever used when it comes to the um, pro-life argument. And uh, yeah, so please, please explain that a little bit more. That's awesome. Absolutely. And I, I hear the same thing from students um, who, who say, I remembered about, I'd never thought about it that way before. And um, I had one student even write to me and tell me she had changed her friend's mind the weekend after a presentation oh, wow. That's awesome. by trotting out. I know it's incredible. Um, and praise God for that. But when you hear a justification given, you should immediately ask yourself, would this be a good enough reason to take the life of a three-year-old? And if the answer is no, then you know that that person is assuming that the unborn is not human, or they're begging that question, what is the unborn? So you can hold your hand out to the side about waist high, and you do that because that gives them something concrete, something to look at and really consider that would be very real to them. And you can say, let's... let's um." We can use poverty as an example, because I do hear that one quite often. Um, uh, let's say that they say, this woman can't afford to feed another child. You know, she already has eight children, and um, th- th- their family's really struggling, and, they, and they, can't, they can't afford it. So why would you be so cruel as to force her to bring this baby into the world? Now, already we have an assumption there that this baby that's in her womb is not already in the world, Right. But don't get angry with that person. Instead, hold your hand out to the side and you could say something like, let's say for the sake of conversation that I had a three-year-old standing right here and her family is really struggling. You know, they, they can't afford to make ends meet. Her father just lost his job. They are barely able to feed all of the children in the family, much less themselves. And so the family got together and reached a consensus. They want to kill their toddler in order to lessen that financial burden. Do you think they ought to have the right to do that? Now, I will just give this to you guys. It, it, <laughs> if you do this and say this, that person's gonna look at you like you're nuts. Right. <laughs> but they will say something to the effect of, no, that's crazy. <laughs> right. When they say that, ask them, why not? Now, at this point, it's hard to predict what they will say, but it will be something along the lines of because the three-year-old is already human, because the three-year-old is a person, they might even say that's completely different. But no matter what they say, you have brought the conversation back to where you want it, back to that question. Because you can respond by saying, oh, see, is it different? That's what I want to know. Is the unborn human like the three-year-old? What is the unborn? Let's talk about that. Then we can talk about poverty because it is a serious issue. Mm -hmm. 
But in right. doing that, you frame the conversation, you've brought it back to a place where you can now forward the conversation in a way that's effective. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that, I mean, that can work for anything, right? I mean, that can work for, you know, the, the child in the womb not being self-aware or the viability or, like you said, the safety of the mother or the possibility of the abuse and neglect. It, it man, it's such a good argument. Absolutely. Uh, it really is. But what do you do with the people who, um, and, and unfortunately I've, I've seen, and I, I've talked to one individual who is, who is this way, not many, but, but one who recognized that they recognize that there is life inside of the woman. It is a, uh, a human being. And yet they, they will cite things such as, you know, viability because the, the child in the womb isn't viable yet that, you can, the mother can choose to kill it. How do you, how do you deal with people like that? Right. Well, this is, it's a separate argument. Um, so what, when we're talking about what is the unborn, which uh, we can come back to this in just a second, that is a specific kind of question. And it is a scientific question. Um, I think that's important to point out because so many assume that we're making a religious argument when we're arguing for the pro-life view. Right. And certainly, yeah. I think ultimately it is grounded in the Imago Dei, in um, the Christian worldview in a wonderful and beautiful way. But I'm asking a scientific question there. And anyone who's really studied up on this um, will understand what science says about the unborn. They know that the unborn is unquestionably human already. Mm -hmm. So they're making a different argument when they begin to go, I know that it's human, but there's something that qualifies some humans for uh, the status of rights and others don't have that. So in essence, what they're saying is that some human beings matter more than others. Mm -hmm. um, now, we could go on and on about, you know, just a brief glance at history of the devastation of that idea when it manifests in society. Yeah. Um, the Holocaust is just one example. Um, slavery is another. And, and that's even going on in our culture today in different ways. We take that question or that, that, that idea, some human beings don't matter as much as others, when that has wheels on it, you know, you, you end up with sex trafficking, you end up with bullying, um, you end up with us comparing ourselves from, from little things to devastatingly big things, and abortion is certainly one of those. But that is a philosophical argument. And what it's really getting at is, what is it that makes some human beings more valuable? What is the thing that gives us value? So that's the question that that individual you were referring to is asking or is, 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 um, is, is pointing out. Something like viability would be their answer to that question. Well, it's viability. It's, it's, it's their ability to live outside of the womb or their ability not to be dependent upon their mother that um, makes them valuable and deserving of rights. Well, we have a couple of questions for that. What is it about viability that is value giving to begin with? And if we're talking about something like the unborn's dependency on its mother, well, my mom is dependent upon the medicine she takes for diabetes because mm -hmm. her body doesn't naturally produce insulin in the way that it ought to. And without that medicine, she won't live very long. But I can't kill my mom because of that, that degree of dependency. Um, so we begin looking and going, once we name something um, functional or some, some kind of attribute or trait or ability that a human being gains in the course of their development, then what we have is, is an unfair scale. We have a scale of rights or a, 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 a sliding scale at that. And on that spectrum, those who have less of that thing, that ability or that function, are going to be less valuable logically than others. Mm -hmm. So we create unjust societies. And at Life Training Institute, we talk about the work of uh, philosopher Stephen Schwartz, uh, because he said that when we look at the unborn and we look at us, there are really only four areas of difference you can point out between um, the unborn and you and me, Michael. They're uh, the areas of size, the unborn are tiny, level of development, they're less developed than we are, clearly. Um, environment, which refers to where they're located, and then degree of dependency, which um, viability touches on that one just a little bit. But what Schwartz goes on to conclude is that these differences don't work in such a way that, that, that tell us that you could have been killed back then, but not now. And the reason is that spectrum of rights problem. If we look mm -hmm. at size, and we say that size is the determining factor for our value or for the rights that we have, well, not all human beings are the same size. Like women's rights would be out the window right now because, because women, generally speaking, are smaller than men. My kids wouldn't make it in the world. Right. If size is what determines value, then 
we have a sliding scale on which smaller human beings matter less than larger ones. It just does not work. Level of development, same kind of thing. The unborn are less developed than we are. But my son is less developed than his dad. Um, so because Rogan doesn't even yet have a fully working reproductive system. He's only seven. But we can't kill him for that reason. And yet we're arguing that because the unborn are less developed, perhaps we can kill them. It doesn't work. Because right. human beings have level of develop, levels of development that differ. Um, as a matter of fact, this one's significant, the level of development one, because on uh, some of the university campuses or in conversation, you will hear people refer to um, things that sound very sophisticated, like self-awareness. And you just pointed that out. Uh, Dr. Peter Singer would be an example of someone who argues that way. And he defines self-awareness very particularly. Um, but self-awareness and consciousness and these types of things are all level of development arguments. Um, so they're, they're kind of, you have to ask, well, what is it about self-awareness that gives us value to begin with? Why is it that and not some other trait? And then what do we do about the spectrum? Because some of us are less self-aware than others. Certainly someone in a coma is not self-aware at all, but we can't kill them because of their lack of self-awareness. So um, environment is the E in SLED, S-L-E-D, and that's where you're located. The unborn are inside and we are outside of the womb, a difference of less than 10 inches. So if we're saying that, that that small of a change in location brings a non-valuable human into valuable humanity, then we have a real problem because by the same logic, you could argue in reverse and say that by a change of location, you can be counted out of valuable humanity. And then degree of dependency, we talked about just a little bit. The unborn are dependent on their mothers for survival, but there are many of us dependent on things, my mom being one example, um, you can think of many medical issues which would require dependency on a medication or a treatment in order to survive. But we can't kill those people intentionally because of their dependency. So what we have is th this problem where when we when we assume these functional answers to that question, why are human beings valuable? Um, we run into that that sliding spectrum on which some human beings value more than others. We create unjust societies. And we certainly, you know, it doesn't take much to look around and see the way that that's playing out um, in our world today because of that assumption that some human beings matter more than others. Really, in effect, the only answer that philosophy gives that is um, consistent is that we are valuable intrinsically. And that one is so simple. People overlook it all the time. Mm -hmm. It just means that you're valuable in light of the kind of thing that you are. It's because you are human, no more, no less. Um, and that every human being shares a common human nature that grounds their value. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so easy to remember. And I think that um, you, you spelled it out, the the S-L-E-D, the sled. I mean, it's yeah. such a, a good way to remember these arguments. And they're they're not too complicated to to memorize either. Um, and, and so it's such a useful tool. But so how would you talk with someone who uh, they were convinced that, you know, the, the baby inside of the womb was part of the mother and they, therefore, the mother has the right to do whatever she wants with, with the child. Mm -hmm. So the baby is part of her. Well, we know that that's not the case. So we can shift back to the scientific argument and look at what science has to say about the unborn to kind of debunk that. And what we see when we study, um, you know, there's a whole whole branch of science dedicated to the study of embryos called embryology. Um, but when we read one of those textbooks, uh, it, it affirms what we, what we know to be the case, Michael, but it says that from the very beginning, that is at fertilization, and the, like the science, if you dig into that, it just gets more and more fascinating as to how um, all, of that, all of that works and, and what comes into being. Mm -hmm. um, but at fertilization, what we have is a living, distinct, whole human being. We know that it's alive because it, 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 like an organism, the thing that you learned about in seventh grade life science, where you had to like fill out all the, the required things for when do we know that we have an organism? Well, the unborn fits those uh, qualifications at that single celled stage. So it undergoes cellular reproduction, it grows, dead things don't grow. Um, it metabolizes by turning food into energy, responds to stimuli. And we've even seen that embryos have an amazing capacity to do wound repair, mm -hmm. which is fascinating to me. Wow. Yeah. But the second um, indicator there is the unborn is a distinct human being. 
In other words, it is not part of the woman's body. And in fact, if we if we follow that thinking to its logical conclusion, we'd end up with some really weird outcomes, right? That would mean that when I was carrying each of my children, at the time I was carrying them, I actually had like four arms and four right. Legs, right? Yeah. And two heads and all this kind of crazy stuff, which we know is not the case. But it is attached to its mother, but it is not part of her. It's distinct because it has its own unique genetic code that differs from its mom's and its dad's. And that's why people will often argue, um, they'll say things like, well, it has its own blood type or its own organs and even its own gender. Mm -hmm. I'm carrying a male child. That's certainly the case. Um, These things are true because it is distinct, because it is not part of her. Um, And then that goes on and on, too, especially with the when we get to the unborn being whole, we, we, we can unpack that a bit and find some really fascinating depths there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and dive into that. So what do you mean by the unborn being whole? Okay. That one sounded crazy to me the first time I heard it, because I thought you're talking about a single cell being a whole human being. Right. Yeah, exactly it. um, If you don't mind me getting a bit technical for a second, this blows my mind. I have to share this with you. So Dr. Maureen Kondik is... um, She's a brilliant professor. She's a, a, a neurobiologist. So she studies kind of the, the workings of the brain. Just one of those super brilliant people who contributes so much. And um, she is very pro-life. And she's often asked, how do we know when we have one cell become a new cell? So as a scientist, she's very qualified to answer that question. And she says, oh, well, I'm paraphrasing clearly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she says, in across the, the fields of sciences, across the field of biology, We know that one cell becomes another cell when one of two things happens. So either the cell changes in its, the fancy term is material composition, which just means the stuff that it's made up of. If that changes, then by definition, you have a new cell. Mm -hmm. The other indicator is that it changes its behavior. If it changes the way that it behaves, then you have, by definition, a new cell. Only one of those things has to happen. So what she goes on to demonstrate is at the moment of fertilization in about 210 milliseconds, like I can't even fathom that short of amount of time, but 210 milliseconds after sperm meets egg, the, the plasma membranes of those cells begin to merge, which means that that egg cell changes in its material composition. Oh, wow. So in that short amount of time, you have a brand new cell. It goes from being an egg cell that could have lived around 24 hours in its environment to being a brand new kind of cell that can now survive a hundred years given medical technology because it is a human being. I think that's that's amazing. I know. Um, So the unborn is whole from the very beginning and we can, we can unpack that in in a couple of ways. One is to understand that um, it is not, you know, part of something else. So this speaks a little bit to the, the question that you just had, but perhaps from a different angle. So unlike my skin cells, um, you know, that you can, I know they fall off of you all day long, which is why the the dogs that search for people can find them because you're shedding skin cells all day and all of them contain your DNA encoding. Um, And many of them, when they fall off of you, are still alive and they'll die a a couple of minutes after they hit whatever surface they land on. But those cells are part of us and they have a specific job. Their job is to contribute to the overall function of the organism that is one of us. The embryo is different from just any other cell in the body. It's even different from sperm and egg cells, which are alive, but they also serve a function as part of a larger organism. The embryo is a whole entity in and of itself. And even at that single-celled stage, even as a zygote, um, its parts contribute to its overall function. And it goes on to do these absolutely remarkable things. So just to make another distinction from there, we tend to think of embryos as things that are constructed, which kind of makes sense given that we live in a very industrial society. We build mm-hmm. stuff all the time. You know, we have cars coming off assembly lines in mass production every day. Um, but it does something to think about the unborn that way. If you think about how, how ideas have consequences, we've gone from using terms like procreation, which is what my grandmother would have said. Mm-hmm. And now our, my generation exclusively uses the term reproduction. It's very industrial. Right. Um, yeah. Never so thought about that before. I well, well, I've learned that from someone much smarter than me. But <laughs> but it made me stop and think and go, wow, 
you're right. That really does kind of affect the way we tend to think of them. So we hear, oh, it's just a clump of cells Mm -hmm. or it's just a mass of tissue as if you could add some more parts and then the end product, you know, quote unquote, would be a baby. But the unborn does something that constructed things can't do. It's not constructed at all. It, It develops itself from within. So from the time you were an embryo, because you didn't come from one, you once were one, you drove your own development from within, from that point to where you are now. And you're still developing, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely fascinating. Um, Just to throw in one helpful thing there that that I think made a huge difference for me. And I know when I I talk about this illustration with students, I always get the like, (gasps) moment. (laughs) And I know, I understand, because that's what I did the first time I heard it. So philosopher... Richard Stith uh, gives an illustration that, that makes a distinction between construction and development. And he talks about uh, being in the Amazon jungle of South America, holding a camera. Now, it's always hilarious when I have to like explain to students this, this device that's like an artifact to them. <laughs> um, it was not attached to a phone. It was it's a clunky box. Right, yes. Um, but particularly a Polaroid camera. So the kind that would spit the tab out right there, which yeah. was revolutionary for its time. Right. Um, so he said, imagine you have one of those and you're standing in the Amazon taking pictures of the scenery and you go to snap a photograph and a black jaguar leaps out of the path right in front of you. And you know you've caught that image, which is pretty remarkable because black jaguars are extremely rare. They're just hard to find in the wild. So there are very few photographs that actually exist of them. So you're holding your tab, right? And you're waiting and maybe you're doing like the shaking thing. I'm not really sure how that works because I feel like those are the people who like push the elevator button too many times, you know? Right, right. (laughs) It's going to help. But he says, imagine you're about 10 seconds into the process and someone comes and looks over your shoulder and they take that tab from your hands and they, they rip it up and toss it aside. Now you would be furious with them. But imagine they looked at you and said, what's the big deal? it was nothing more than a brown smudge. Right. And you'd say, no, it wasn't. No, I was, I was holding a photograph of a black jaguar. It was rare and beautiful and valuable. It was already there. You just couldn't see it yet because it was developing. Wow. Yeah. Just like the embryo, just like we did. Mm -hmm. Man, that's powerful. I, I, well, thank you, Richard Stiff, but yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I guess maybe shifting gears just a little bit. You mentioned earlier, you know, the safety of the mother being a reason why people want to keep abortions legal. And so maybe we're shifting a little bit to the legislative again. Um, But how do you argue with people who believe that, you know, we need to keep abortions available and legal due to the safety of the mother? Because there's, you know, these all all these complications that can happen, um, uh, and you know, the mother could die or something like that, and and we need to keep abortions available and legal and on demand because of that reason. Right. Well, I I think the first thing to understand, just going into that conversation with someone, um, is the realization that this whole uh, dialogue in our nation, I, too many of us tend to see it as an us versus them Mm -hmm. type of issue. And I think what's missed oftentimes is that it's not really an us versus them. This is a human rights issue. And everyone at the table cares about someone um, and feels deep compassion for the suffering of someone. Of course, I think the pro-life position is ultimately more inclusive. But to to walk into that conversation, understanding that I think will help temper um, the way that it comes across and, and just even to make it clear right off the bat that anyone who is harmed because of abortion is not okay. Mm-hmm. It is, it's, a, it's a travesty when anyone is harmed because of this issue. Um, so thinking about that, um, I think the first place that I would go is to, we've already talked about this a little bit, asking myself, what if we were talking about a three-year-old here? Because right? w- what's overlooked in that charge oftentimes is who is always being harmed when a mother seeks an abortion, whether it is uh, in a hospital setting or in a a dangerous setting, which I hope would never be the case that um, a mother would choose to walk into that setting. Um, But it assumes that the unborn is not human. 
because abortion is particularly exists for the intentional killing of that unborn child for the snuffing out of a life. And so we have to kind of start there. Well, if we, if we know, as the argument points out, that the unborn is unquestionably human, just like you and me, and just as valuable as we are because of intrinsic value being the thing that grounds our value, then what is so wrong with laws that make it more difficult for people to intentionally take innocent lives? Mm-hmm. Now, we would hope that nobody would would walk into a situation like that. Um, and, and I can't, I can't imagine the desperation that would drive someone to that. But I think that if we if we just assume that all women are going to run to do this, then it kind of is a, a lower view of women in general, as if they can't make intelligent choices for themselves. Um, however, I think we have to start with what that argument assumes about the about the unborn. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what about the the argument that, uh, and, I, and I'm sorry, I keep asking you these things because so, you're okay. just so good at, uh, at answering these things. But uh, what about the argument where, you know, if you make abortions illegal, then you're just really hurting minority groups uh, who are needing this kind of care? Mm-hmm. So if you make abortions illegal, you're going to hurt minorities who can't who don't have access to abortion. Again, same kind of place where we have to start. We're talking about access to what? Abortion, by definition, is the intentional killing of the human fetus. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is access to be able to intentionally kill the unborn, an innocent human being. Um, So I think we have to kind of of start there. But I... that that would that's where that one falls apart to me for me. Yeah. Because yeah. automatically assuming that we're we're not allowing them access to this, you know, proper what is what they call health care, which assumes that abortion is health care when in fact it is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's a that's kind of a common myth that gets thrown around that um that places like Planned Parenthood, if you were to de- defund Planned Parenthood, then there would be you know no other resource for women who are pregnant and in need of of help. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that gets thrown around a lot. And the rhetoric certainly is um, compelling in that direction, you know, what we hear from the media. Um, but no, there are there are clinics who offer um, similar, <laughs> similar health care and even abortion um, that are that are that exists already that aren't Planned Parenthood. Um, but furthermore, as far as a woman not having access to care or support, uh, what we know about pregnancy resource centers is that they outnumber abortion providers at least three to one. And I think the number is much more significant than that. Wow. Um, and what we have with a pregnant, a plan, I'm sorry, a pregnancy resource center, I've got tongue twister going on here, <laughs> um, <laughs> is we have these organizations that are primarily volunteer run, as I'd said earlier. And so these are men and women, and by the way, they are women and men who are in these centers helping not just not just mothers, but fathers and families who come mm-hmm. in facing crisis pregnancies, um, who long to offer support. That's why they're doing what they do. And they don't just offer support up to birth. In fact, the, the local uh, pregnancy resource center that I support, both in my town in Georgia, where I live before now, I, I now live in the Colorado Springs area, um, both of them support mothers for years after birth, mm-hmm. I know even up until the baby is up to two years of age, you know you can find um, clothing and diapers and uh, formula and uh, even even clothes for the mom. And you know people donate things like car seats and strollers, and um, they even teach classes to help new moms who are not, feel that they're ill-equipped to be a mom just learn how to do this parenting thing. And they do it with loving support. Um, and so this, I, I think that it's an unfair myth that gets thrown around for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I've, you know, I've kind of heard that too. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I watched, a, I can't remember who it was, but I, I watched a debate and uh, between a pro-life and a pro-choice. And they were using that argument as as a as a reason to keep abortion uh, legal. And, and then the guy in the pro-life was just, you know, naming all of these resources. And it, it's just, it's really eye-opening sometimes being able to hear that there are these these things out there and available for women. And it's it's just sad that sometimes they just get fed all this misinformation. Um, and do you think that that's also an issue with, uh, you know, if you make abortions illegal, then you'll have, you know, all of these back alley abortions where it'll hurt not only the child, but the mother as well. Do you think that's just another myth that gets thrown out there as well? Or do you think there's something to that argument? Um, well, I... 
is it realistic that women who long to have an abortion will put themselves in a dangerous situation? Um, I, I think that's a possibility. But to have it thrown around to the degree that it is, in other words, the numbers that are cited for the pre-Roe versus Wade um, world that we lived in are largely overblown. And that has been demonstrated by um, people who supported abortion and who actually were abortion providers. I think even Mary Calderon you know, was, was someone who said that um, most of the abortions performed prior to Roe versus Wade, uh, at least 90% were performed by physicians in good standing in their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were just performing them illegally. Um, so the, the numbers that we see there, every single one of them being a tragedy, uh, were actually much, much lower than the, the tens of thousands that are kind of thrown around that we hear. Um, so I, yes, of course, I think it's going to be a possibility. After all, when we outlaw things like rape and drive-by shootings, you know, we, those things still occur on occasion, um, most unfortunately. Um, so I think that, that, that we'll see that if abortion is outlawed as well. However, by keeping our, our, our focus like a laser on that very first thing we talked about, what does abortion do? Well, abortion innocently or intentionally kills innocent human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that is true, and I do think that it is, uh, then that has to stop. It can't be something that we allow just to make it safer for those who are trying to seek the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have any parting advice that you would give people who are having these conversations with their friends or with their family members specifically um, that you would that you would just give and and to encourage them or or to help them out? Um, Absolutely. I goodness, things that I've had to learn along the way um, in talking to people about this and talking to students about it. um, I think that when we talked about intrinsic value being the best answer for, for why we matter, and of course that is grounded in the Imago Dei, every single one of us as human beings is an, is an image bearer. And um, so that really tempers the way that I go about this in far, as far as when I'm talking to someone who disagrees with me, maybe even vehemently disagrees with me, and is maybe even um, speaking to me in an angry way because of the ideas involved. I don't think they're really angry with me. They're angry with what I'm putting forward, the argument. Um, I have to keep in mind that that individual is just as valuable and worthy of respect as the unborn children I'm trying to protect. And when we let the discourse go in such a way, as my friend Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason, great Christian Mm -hmm. apologist says, if anyone becomes angry because of me, I lose that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have to do this in, a, in an artful way, in a thoughtful way. I also think that if we can keep in mind that contrary to what our nation tends to believe about this issue, because when it comes to abortion, people think about this as a preference issue. That's not how they think about other things. You know, we hear we hear the tagline, oh, if you don't like abortion, then don't have one. In other mm-hmm. words, this is my truth. You live your truth. Right. Um, which we hear is that that's moral relativism, and it has seeped into the culture in such a way that that, that people, you know, understand morality w- with regard to this issue as being something subjective, entirely up to us to create and decide for ourselves. But if we just stop for a second, and 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 take that saying, even that one, don't like abortion, don't have one, and point to another moral issue that's very visible and understandable. What if we were to say, oh, you don't like slavery? Well, don't own one immediately we would begin to see that morality, the way that we talk about it and understand it, is not a subjective thing. It is real and we can know it and understand it. And what that does to me when I'm talking to people is helps me understand this issue is not mine. It's not my truth. It just either is or isn't objectively true. Of course, I think that it is. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, when someone comes to me and says something contrary to what I think to be true about it, I don't have to be, feel attacked by that. Instead, I can feel curious. And that opens up the ground for being able to pursue, a, a, I think, a, a, a conversation that really gets somewhere. Because it makes you curious about the other person. You want to learn about them, learn where they're coming from, ask really great questions, and then make a way so that you can make your scientific and philosophical case. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- I'm glad that you mentioned philosophical and, uh, and scientific, because I think there are sometimes uh, this... I guess this uh, false dichotomy set up where people believe that uh, you know you either have to make the the strictly philosophical or, or biblical case, or you have to only use use science. And it's just I think in this case, 
I think with abortion, it really comes together so beautifully because they they just meet in the middle in such an amazing way because you can make all these scientific arguments, but and and they're good and they are solid. And then all of that is just rooted in biblical truth, being made in the image of God uh, and having in this intrinsic value because uh, because we are we're loved by God, and that's that's such an amazing thing. And in a I think in, for some people, an, un, an unexpected gateway to the gospel, being able to share the gospel with people, uh, oh. because it's, oh man, it's just so, I get, I get really excited and worked up about it, but uh, yeah, right. I'm so, glad you mentioned those two things. Yeah, these conversations for me, and, and science, by the way, my goodness, the great scientists of the past, when theology was the queen of the sciences, yeah, would yeah. say that studying science is getting, getting to think God's thoughts after him. Right. Um, Certainly, if he is the source of all that is true, then he's the God of science too. Um, but, but yeah, I'm with you, and I and I can I can attest to that. These conversations about who we are and why we matter lead to gospel conversations, starting with science, typically mm. more than any other conversations that I have. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's amazing. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so, where can people find you? Where can people see what you're doing and all that kind of stuff if they if they're interested to dig a little bit deeper into this topic. Wonderful. Well, we have a plethora of resources at ProLife Training, all mushed together, one word, no hyphens. ProLifeTraining.com. That's Life Training Institute's website. And you can go there and find articles and a blog post that that addresses kind of current things as they're coming out. Um, Videos of our speaking team presenting in various places. You can also book a speaker there if you'd like for one of us to come and visit your school or your church or any kind of other event that you have going on. We work quite often with pregnancy resource centers and others. Um, We'd be honored to come and speak and share and, um, and, and participate in that. In addition to that, Scott Klusendorf, uh, my boss, the president of Life Training Institute, has written a book called The Case for Life. And everything that we talked about in this podcast really is covered in the first four to five chapters of that book. Um, It's a great resource. It's a great place to dive in, learn some of these basic arguments and and by you know arguments can uh, that can be tempered of course with with a very respectful and winsome attitude um when you're talking to other people and then you can follow footnotes from there which is how i got started awesome fantastic well megan thank you again so much for this i learned so much and i know people listening uh they're going to be blessed and they're going to learn so much from it and and man thank you so much for this you're so welcome thanks for having me michael For listening to the Truth for Doubt discussion series. If you want to learn more about the Truth for Doubt ministry, email us anytime at truthfordoubt at gmail.com. That is truthfordoubt at gmail.com. If you would like to learn how you could become a supporter of the Truth for Doubt ministry, send us an email or feel free to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash t4d. That is patreon.com slash t the number four D. Thank you for listening.